and said, maybe, maybe. I can't imagine far as much trouble sharing with. Okay. Contact warning for this episode. Discussion of abduction and sexual abuse. You may like to skip this episode or think about when and with whom you listen to it. I'm Ali Baker, she, her, an education lecturer and children's fantasy literature researcher at University of East London. You're listening to Fantasy Book Swap, where a guest and I sort children's fantasy fiction, one classic and one contemporary, and we discuss them. Today I'm joined by Caroline Mersey, she, her, crafter, cosplayer and book reviewer. Hello Caroline, what have you been up to recently? Hi Ali. Gosh, what have I been up to? Well, I've been reading a lot of short fiction recently because I'm one of the jurors for the British Fantasy Awards this year, so I'm uh, one of the team judging the best anthology category, which I did oh, a couple cool. of Yeah, I did it a couple of years ago. It's a really great thing to do and, and just one of those things that they put a call out for volunteers and I thought I'll volunteer for that. Really great. Chance to read some really interesting, really exciting writers. And hashtag no spoilers, but I am <laughs> so thrilled with uh, the collection that we picked for the winner this year. So you'll find out all about that at FantasyCon. I will be at FantasyCon and I am going to be recording an f- episode of Fantasy Bookswap there. And I am so excited for the BS Fair Awards, it's the British Fantasy Awards, I should say. It's going to be super, super exciting. So, oh, of course, we've just eaten the most amazing ice cream because we're recording we this in Brighton. <laughs> we are. So tri- no trip to the seaside is complete without good ice cream. Uh, I had some amazing apple strudel and ginger nut, in case you're wondering. Uh, really, really good with loads of little caramelised apple pieces. And I had a ginger nut because it's vegan. Vegan ice cream is a big joy. So, yes, everybody come to Brighton, eat vegan gelato. I recommend it. So the, the book that you chose was The Blue Sword by Robin McKinley, which was published in 1982, which absolutely blew my mind when I realised it was published in 1982. Can you summarise the plot? I can. So it's uh, about a young woman uh, called Harry and her parents have died. So she's uh, moved uh, to kind of a a colonies. It's kind of like a Victorian type period setting. Mm. And she's moved to the colonies to be with her brother, who's now her guardian. And she's living in a kind of a British colonial ambassador's house as as kind of like a bit of a looked after ward type thing Mm. uh, out on a colonial frontier. And there's lots of kind of rumours of war and stuff. uh, And it's a real frontier town. And what happens is, is that the... uh, the indigenous people come round and look for an alliance with uh, the uh, Homelander Empire, which is uh, Harry's people. Uh, there's a big falling out, and Harry gets kidnapped by the king of the uh, indigenous people and taken away because uh, his magic tells him to kidnap her. And she trains to become a warrior. She wins uh, a big tournament. 
um, and eventually she uh, she runs away uh, because the king won't listen to her advice and saves the world all by herself with with some of her friends. Uh, and it's it's a story that always kind of like really appealed to me as a girl because you've got uh, a young woman who's got a magic sword and a warhorse and kind of like a pet leopard uh, that yeah. looks after her and she saves the world with her magic sword all by herself because the men won't listen to her. It's you know in some ways it's a really feminist story and then yeah. surprise surprise she turns out to be mixed race and from the uh, partly from the culture of the indigenous people. Yeah, I mean I I loved. I'd forgotten all about the magic cat leopard thing. Um, but yeah, it's very kind of the way the cat is written is very, um, it's very tactile. It's a weird thing to say, it's a very tactile writing. And I was reading a lot of it stroking my own cat and sort of thinking, yeah, you're not magic. <laughs> but yeah, that, that they're hunting cats, aren't they? they These yeah. big cats. Hunting cats that like porridge and cuddles. Yes. And- and purr a lot. Uh, so, so for me, it's kind of Harry was always a character that that I identified with a lot uh, growing up. And, yeah, you know, just wanted to be her. If you're a cat a cat girl and or a pony girl, and I was always wanted to be a pony girl, I never actually was mm. a pony girl, but I I've always loved horses. Yeah, uh, it most definitely is a lot of wish fulfillment there. And um, and also that it's one of those stories of like what seems like disadvantages in your own world. So like being too tall, too big, too strong, actually turn out to be massive advantages in your magical world. And that's that was a very much my delight. Yeah, and that that sense of Harry as a, a girl who doesn't fit in where she's from. Mm. You know, she's too bold, she's too tall, she likes books, she likes adventure. You know, her mother raised her to be a bit more risk-taking. They'd always take the horses out and, you know, um, go and ride around and didn't do her schoolwork and only learned to dance because it might help her be a better rider. Yeah. You know, and that, that feeling of not fitting in, I think, is something that when you're growing up and feeling very awkward, having someone like that, uh, yeah. to kind of, it's very easy to identify with someone. And the fact that her mum validated yeah. all of that is, is quite delightful as well. Can you remember first your first reading of it? I can't. I know I would have borrowed it from my local library. Mm. And I also know it was a book that I read a lot. So it's one of those that I would re-borrow a yeah. lot. And I would take it out a lot. And even now, it's a book that I will still probably read every year. Bought myself a copy of it. And, you know, just it's my comfort book, really. This yeah. is like one of my ultimate comfort stories. You know, I want to, to want to read about the magical girl and saving the world and, uh, you know, falling in love and, uh, you know, being being unexpectedly good at things and redheaded big sister warriors called Erin who come and talk to you in fires. I mean, it's just it just touches a lot. Of a lot of those kind of yeah. notes for me. Yeah, I I think I mean I I know I didn't really like read it as a child, so I think I might first read it when I was in my twenties and really enjoyed it. Um, I've got the same copy that that you have, um, which photo of which I will put on social media. But yeah, it won it won a Newbery Award in nineteen eighty two, and I think we'll sort of. Well, let's talk about the magical girls trope, shall we? Yeah. 
Um, it is something now that I think has become maybe a bit of a cliche in young adult work that's aimed at girls and young women. Um, but this was written in 1982, and I think that's something that we we kind of have to remember. It also the fact that it's written in 1982 interests me because that is before Alana, um, Tamora, Tamora Pierce's Alana books, yeah. which were first published. In, I mean, I know that Tamora Pierce wrote them, wrote the first book ages before it was published, but uh, The Blue Sword was published first. It was. And when you, when I think about the other books that I was reading at the time and what else was around, I mean, it was Nancy Drew. Yes. Uh, you know, there was a lot of Doctor Who novels, but girls in other children's fiction didn't get to have those kind of action roles. They didn't get to be the magical heroines. Yeah. It's, so it's, it was very different. And I think that's probably why I latched onto it, because you've got a main character who's a girl and she gets to be the hero and she gets to be the hero on her own terms as well. Yeah. And there's a, a big part of the story is like none of the men, none of the adult men will listen to her, even when she's right. Quite what this says about you know my approach to feminism <laughs> i do not know you know but they don't listen to her so she could go right i'm gonna go and prove you wrong and i'm gonna save the world all by myself and she does what she feels is right because yes. she's got a slightly different perspective on the world because of her um mixed background so she sees things slightly differently and you know she has to attack to that bridge but she's got that real um risk-taking get on with it but she's quite no nonsense as well with it she's, she, she, she adjusts and she settles really quickly she's a thinker as mm. well as you know as well as being extremely proficient um riding and taking to sword play quite easily and quite well and you know that 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 detail about her mum sending her to dancing lessons so she'll become a better horsewoman and you know basically you know building her trunk strength um although the book doesn't really put it like that but you know that kind of building your strength through doing cross training stuff is quite significant because i think it is a trope in a lot of ya fiction that oh it turns out that through magical hand wavy stuff the protagonist is naturally good at this thing that is going to save the world and that isn't actually what the no, blue looking is at about. you paula trades yeah. is the ultimate gary stew and i oh, will die on that hill so much but yeah in this book harry goes and she spends six weeks on intensive boot camp training to yeah. to learn how to fight and she puts the work in and she's sore and she gets bruises and she works hard and she learns and it's it's one of those things um it also reminded me in retrospect reading it now of that captain marvel sequence of all of the you know that part of captain marvel where carol has been told again and again and again that she's not good enough that because she's a girl and she's too small and she's too weak and she can't do these things and like there's this moment of this um i don't know what what do you call it when you've got a sequence of oh like a training montage a training montage gotta have a montage yeah that montage of her every time she's told she can't do something getting up and trying again and that is that's that's actually when I reread it that was quite an emotional thing 
actually that that feeling of ah oh, my superpower is actually uh, my endurance yeah and my resilience and her her self-belief because she, yes. she at no point does she ever doubt herself you know even when she's she's aware that she's been uh, asked to do this more they're expecting her to be a symbolic hero rather yeah. than a hero she, you know what they want is a lady hero to inspire the troops and she's made a king's rider because of the symbolic value of that not because they see her in her worth and, and she goes on and proves her worth yes yeah that that's exactly the point that she's almost wanted as a kind of mascot figure and she kind of comes to realize oh oh okay I'm supposed to keep out of the way and I'm supposed to do my thing but not be in any way any kind of um not have any voice in this I'm just supposed to sit there and be next to Korlaf the king and then she's like actually no I know I know better I know and and her journey her character journey is one of in many ways kind of learning to trust her own judgment yes absolutely and you know particularly where she's a bridge between these two worlds she's she's got to trust her judgment and make choices and learn to act Mm. and to become a leader and be comfortable with becoming a leader and bringing people with her to save the world absolutely that yeah so yeah i think you're right paul atreides in in dune is is an absolute total gary stew self-insert i'm a magically brilliant teenager character and yeah i mean with all my fondness of dune i I can't deny that that is a thing um and the other the other thing that struck me was this was this was published around the time of the original star wars trilogy Mm. so that sort of the way that character of leia um was diminished throughout a lot of the original Star Wars trilogy, and then it all—it just totally became all about Luke and Leia's there in her flipping gold gold bikini. Slave bikini. Yeah, I—I I, you may have heard me roll my eyes then, readers, listeners, but yeah, that that sort of diminishment of uh, female heroism in the Star Wars trilogy, which I think the most recent trilogy did attempt to make up for except it didn't it didn't and ugh, star wars fanboys yeah 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 but at uh, a time when uh, your other film role model was ripley in alien and aliens who unashamedly a woman who knows what's going on the men don't listen to her people die as a result of that mm. but is incredibly capable but also very protective and uh and i love that aliens is a film about motherhood with the yes. alien mother against yes. ripley and protecting children and the fierceness of that yeah. and it feels like a shame that we've lost some of that where we've moved to these very reductive strong female uh, hero stereotypes of you know black widow um, where we just see her arse in a lot of black leather sorry are you allowed swearing on your podcast i think arse is okay arse, arse is isn't okay. really swearing it's just a you know we can pretend it's arse but yeah you're right it's it's kind of um sexy poses in in black leather type of heroism is not um is not really empowering i'm gonna say um yeah 
which is again one of the reasons why I I mean I did love the Black Widow film because I love Florence Pugh so much and like Birds of Prey there's a lot of very practical hairdos in yeah, Black Widow very much so and kind of um yeah, that, that kind of the mockery of the, the hero landing pose, which, which made me laugh a lot. But yeah, it's I think that um, the next generation of those kind of superhero things that are coming through, I think are going to, I hope, continue to address a lot of the kind of the sexism inherent in um, a lot of Magical Girl and... I really hope so. Superheroine um, stories. Yeah, so shall we talk then about the colonialism and exoticism? Because you've already mentioned that we find out quite late on in the book, spoilers, that Harry uh, has a, um, a hill folk, it's a great great grandparent or more than great 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 grandmother great grandmother or a grandmother but it's definitely yes. on her mother's side yes which is interesting because of the relationship we see between her and her mother and her brother who sort of starts off by being quite stiff rumped colonial boy yeah yeah who, who always knew about this relationship and, and it had been kept from harry and it it sort of ends up affecting him as well but kind of the magic blood thing it it does and it's uh, always where i felt a little bit conflicted about this as a book yeah. because it's a pretty at its heart it's a very orient orientalist can't speak today uh, very <laughs> orientalist and it's quite white savior it's very very white savior yeah uh, and i find myself kind of trying to dig a little bit deeper you because it, it, it's that thing where you love the book so you end up trying to justify the problematic yeah, yeah. parts of it so it's like well harry's mixed race so that makes it okay and i think though the the treatment of colonialism in it is interesting uh because the ultimate solution in the book again hashtag spoilers is is for the homelander empire and for the people of damar to uh, engage on a much more equal egalitarian level yes. so uh the homelander empire and I, I i do i do still struggle reading this again with them being the homelander empire having watched uh, so much of the boys uh, <laughs> no, if anyone is going to be shooting laser beams out of their eyes it's going to be Corleth, let's face it yeah, it's not it going to be a, colonel jack no it won't be colonel jack and it won't be richard no 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 <laughs> uh so it is a very Victorian colonial model. They've come in, they're looking, they're thinking about um, mineral wealth and the exploitation of that. Uh, there is a lot of lack of engagement with local culture. Um, the the town where Harry goes to live is known as Istan because they can't pronounce uh, the indigenous name of Ihistan. So that all those, those kind of little features are very present. Uh, but it is about a colonial power coming in and Harry as a representative of that knowing best and thinking Ooh. about the geography and coming in and, and saving it. Um, it. It kind of, it moves, like it does move over the course of the novel and Harry's role as a bridge between the two cultures and the way that she starts to, to get a, a more balanced dialogue between them and starts to change some of those mm. diplomatic relationships helps. But yeah, it's, it's just fundamentally a bit of a white saviour novel. It is, I think. And, and you know, that, that I also feel very uncomfortable in a, with the sort of um, 
eugenicist uh, aspect of a single drop. Yeah. Of, but yeah, that that kind of the, because Robin McKinley, although she mostly wrote in the UK, uh, was American. So those kind of racial politics of the single drop of um, blood making you, you know, uh, untenable as a as a white person, which obviously then went on to influence Nazi um, ideology. I do find that really problematic. And the, the magical blood thing is too close to the sort of magical native, in inverted commas, yep. um, trope that is so often present. And also, of course, the fact that, you know, Korlaf has this magic as a member of the ruling class of his own people, which, again, is, is an uncomfortable... For a lefty, I'm not even going to say lefty liberal, I'm not a lefty liberal, I'm a lefty socialist, it is an anti-royalist, it is an uncomfortable assumption that being of the royal line gives you magical powers. And it's yeah. that very small C conservative thing yes, that we see in a lot of it's a lot of fantasy fiction, which is like Downton Abbey but with magic, where you have very happy servants yeah. and people who uh, deserve their um, their position as ruler and um, relying on um, heritage and heredity because of magic makes it so and justifies it. Yes. which is quite uncomfortable. And Harry is posh and privileged. You know, she grew up um, in a house with servants. Yes, she's an orphan, and yes, she has no money because her brother has inherited the house and the title, mm. and uh, there is nothing allowed to her. But she comes from a really privileged background, and her great grandmother would have married out and into Homelander society as a noblewoman, uh, marrying into um, another privileged family. So she carries all that, even if yeah. that historic uh, relationship and marriage has tainted the family a little bit, and then kind of not all that and not terribly culpable yeah. but it, it's there uh, she comes with an education and her friends in um, in Istan are the daughters of other privileged people and they you know go out and ride and take tea and embroider and it's all very very civilized quite Jane Austeny kind of pursuits it's not there are servants everywhere we don't learn much about the servants in this book they serve very willingly but they're they're very blank yeah, no, we know nothing about the, the servants in the book at all. And nothing about... Um, also, the, the voice of the ordinary uh, hill folk is quite absent. You know, even her friends um, that she recruits at the end of the book to go and defend the Khyber Pass. Sorry, I mean the Northwest Passage. <laughs> are very... Um, they're like, they're, they're nobility. Their, their um, hill folk nobility, and one of them is the the son of a, a, a tribal chief, who's going to yeah, who's knows he's not going to be disowned because his his father has no other children, and so yeah, yeah, and um, both the homelander and the Damarian society feel very flat, so you have no sense of factions or conflict within those societies they're, yeah. they're very monolithic the king says we do you know everyone's on board everyone's on the same page there's no sense of differing views yeah. or, or anything like that really absolutely and there's there's a very um there's a very divine right of kings mm. type of um 
Yeah, which and it, and it's unexplained. You know, we we see it all from through Harry, who and and Harry is ignorant of a lot of the the way that the um, hill folk. Yeah, we we only learn what Harry learns. Is is I think what I'm trying to say. We don't we don't learn anything outside of Harry's view. Um, there's a one chapter which is from Corlath's perspective, but other than that, it's all Harry's ideas. And of course, she she becomes Harry Mad Soul, um, who's you know like an, an almost an avatar of a goddess. It's you know it's a, a kind of um, oh gosh, what's the word? She becomes a myth mythical character, doesn't she? Really, she does. Yeah. And it, yeah, and I mean, having said all of that, I think that as the beginning of um, the historic, the, the historical fantasy, heroic nature of, of young adult fiction, I do think it's really worth reading. It's really enjoyable. I'd love to see it made as a film. I think oh, it would make an amazing too. film. Me too. And for, for something from 1982, it hasn't aged too badly? No. No. It hasn't at all. And um, while there is this abduction scene, we know, and Harry knows, she's, it's not sexualised. No. There's no kind of you know idea of like the shake Rudolph Valentino around it. And Corlath is not seen as a seductive character at all. He's very kind of practical and... The romance at the end kind of almost comes out of the blue. Yeah, it's like, what? <laughs> all, all of a sudden you, you've been apart and you're pledging undying love to each other. And, and it's kind of not, not signalled, apart from you get small hints of it, particularly when Harry's in his palace and he puts her in the house that was built for his mother yeah. and you get that sense of him trying to show a little bit of himself and you yeah. see a little bit of his thoughtfulness. But it's not well... No, and until very close to the end, the first time I read it, I was convinced that Harry was going to end up um, married to the elderly colonel guy who's really into um, uh, Homelander mythology and stuff because he seemed to be the one that she was most connecting with, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. So Colonel Jack, that that's yes, that's Colonel Jack. He, uh, yeah, or or possibly Dickie's friend, the yes. other, the the soldier that had a bit of a crush on her, yeah. and was was kind of quite quiet about it. But yeah, that that's. Um, but it's also very much like it is Harry's choice, you know. She yeah. she chooses who she's going to marry, which is also. Quite it is. It is, and I'm I'm leafing through the book as we're talking because I think it's also, um, and I'm trying to find the the passage. It's quite a sex positive book in some ways mm. because there's a very strong implied sense that Harry and Corliss have sex before they're married. Yes, you know they come back, they pledge undying love. Um, she heals her her bestie, and and then he carries her off to his tent, and yeah, and things happen. Veils are drawn. Yes. But, and yeah, the, the 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 tent flap is firmly closed, and we don't know what else is going on in there. But yeah, it's it's um yes, it is a very enlightened book for its time. But you know, reading it, gosh, how many years later? Forty? 
was yeah. Lord Almighty. Yeah, reading it 40 years later is uh, it stands up, but with um, sort of yes, we we've moved on from here, and we should have moved on from here. Yes, and that's that's a very cool thing. So. Um, the book I've chosen, interestingly enough, I thought was published way, way after this. Turns out it wasn't. Um, and it's A Winged in Cairo. I'm just going to now have to find the blurb of the book because my, my uh, Kindle app has decided to go right to the end of the book. I don't really understand why. Come on, okay. So, can I find an about this book? Here we go, about this book. So this is A Wind in Cairo by Judith Toll. Now I must say, the blurb does not tell you a great deal about the plot, but in some ways that's an okay thing. So the blurb says, the prince, spoiled, reckless, heedless of any wants or needs but his own, sentenced to a terrible fate for his sins against man, woman and God. Hmm, let's come back to that point. The stallion, equally spoilt, equally reckless, bound until death to a bitter servitude. The Turk's heir, fiercest of rivals, most devoted of enemies, whose armour hides a secret, come into the world of the Arabian Nights, where magic and mystery meet, where justice lays a sinner low, and the magic of the heart turns hate to love. Good God. <laughs> what a really dreadful blurb. It's a terrible blurb for a, <laughs> for a great book. And, and can I say, I was so excited when you suggested this as the book to read along. I kind of air punched and went, yes! Oh, really? That's yeah. so great. Because uh, I read this uh, years ago and absolutely loved it. I first heard about Judith Tarr. I think I was trying to rack my brains to think about where I'd heard about this book from. And I think I'd heard that Catherine Kerr had said that Judith Tarr wrote the best horses and, and read the best horse books and, you know, really understood horses. And if you wanted to read a fantasy writer that knew about horses, mm. read Judith Tarr. So the name had, had kind of stuck in my head. And I found a copy of A Wind in Cairo in a secondhand bookshop when I was browsing. And so I picked it up knowing nothing beyond Catherine Kerr really recommended this writer. And I, I read a blurb very much like that, thought, that sounds like fun, grabbed it, read it at the time, loved it, but I've not read it since. So thank you. Oh, I'm so glad. But it is the perfect book to put alongside the Blue Sword. And it's really, really interesting. Isn't it fascinating? And it's also quite an old book, isn't it? Yeah, it was published in 1989, which absolutely astonished me when I realised that. Because I came across, um, I came across Judith Tarr through her writing on tour.com mm -hmm. and she wrote a series of blog posts on tour.com about horses in fiction and having been uh, an imaginary horsey girl as a young woman I read it and one of the reasons why I enjoyed reading this book so much was that she sort of wrote it as a corrective to C.S. Lewis's A Horse and His Boy it's a terrible book. And and Lewis gets horses so wrong. <laughs> and that was because he assumes 
that the most powerful animals in a, a herd of horses is the stallion and it isn't it's the mares mares are utterly vicious if you go near a mare when she has a foal she will kick you into the middle of next week and possibly kill you and that is yeah and, and mares decide when it's the time to mate they will allow a stallion to mate with her so it's a lot of consenting going on and uh, yeah mares take absolutely no prisoners when it comes to uh, the leadership of the herd and I loved that now I do say this with a kind of apology because I know that for a lot of people really love Aravis but we will probably let's in fact let's talk about Aravis does nothing in the horse and his boy she's she dresses up as a boy and she's a companion and she's a reward at the end mm. but but she does nothing except she's just a bit rude to Shester and oh yeah and I Aslan treats her in a very, punishes very unfair her. way yeah punishes, punishes her for drugging her maid to escape yeah yeah, I mean, I mean that's not a good thing to do, but she does not deserve no. being mauled by a lion. No. Um, no, absolutely not. So shall we talk about Samanya as yes. a kind of, who's the, she's the daughter of Al-Zaman, who, um, in fact, actually, I will recommend, if you get the Kindle edition of this book, reading the end, the final chapter, which is the afterword, which explains the historical setting of the book, which is a thing I knew nothing about. So that was fascinating to me. So, um, Samania is Samania's brother, like Aravis's brothers, were killed in the Crusades, and her father decides to bring her up as a boy. Now, with Aravis, this is seen as a joyful thing, as a really positive thing, like she, can, she has the freedom to go and do what she likes. But for Zamania, it sets her totally apart from other women. There's no possibility of friendship with women and because of, of this. So what, what did you think about that, that aspect of the story? Was that something you'd thought of before? I liked it. I liked it a lot. It mm. felt felt a lot more honest that uh, she's 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 raised to be quite tomboyish. But you see that yearning in her for what would it be like to be able to be a girl to go and uh, live in the harem and be around other women. And she really craves female friendship and female companionship yeah, and feels very isolated. And she's very pressured as well because she's doing this to please her father because yeah. she has to do what her father says but you don't get the sense that this is what she wants herself no and her journey is about for me is about actually learning to articulate what she wants and to making her own choices and doing things mm. for herself and not doing things because they will please her father uh, I, I really liked it and I and I know we'll come on to talk about it but I really liked as well her friendship uh, with the um the Frankish concubine Wiberada, yeah, uh, which you know, where in many ways Zamania has everything that Wiberada wants. She's got the freedom and the ability to ride and go out rather than being an owned 
chattel whose job it is to provide sexual pleasure to her master uh, and that that envy and particularly for Weberada having been raised with that freedom and knowing how to ride and to fight but also being a bit out of place and very isolated from her people and feeling very trapped so I liked it I mean it's a much more complex it's a much more layered story for everybody concerned when you start to, to bring that yeah. in it's not like harry who hurls itself in with willingness and joy into everything you know samania doesn't really want this and at times she no. threatens to take herself out of it that's her hold over her father absolutely that and she's yeah she appreciates the ability to go riding she appreciates her relationship with iskander the um the Greek riding, no, he's not a riding master, he's like the head of the stables. I don't know what you call him. He's in charge of horses. Anyway, um, one of the things, the, the things I really liked about this book was certainly, firstly, that the, the discussion around gender norms and what is, what are the advantages and disadvantages of being brought up as a boy and being able to do boy things. And there are advantages, but yes, there are de- in this world there are def- definitely disadvantages. One of them being that her father has banned her from making friends with anybody in the harem, mm. and that is such an interesting idea that cut off from female friendship is is so painful for for Zamania. The other thing was how how diverse um, Cairo was in the Middle Ages. That was fascinating. I really enjoyed that. And the, the, the character of Jafar within the book. He's one of my favourites. Yeah. What, what did you like about Jafar? Uh, I like... He, he felt very fully fleshed out as someone, uh, uh, a Nubian who was uh, a slave mm-hmm. um, and a, a body servant, but an interesting relationship between him and Zamania. He's, he's protective. He's a bit of a father figure. He's a comfort. He is obviously in love with her as well. And a mother figure. And a mother figure, and, but teaches her, protects her, is her confidant. But you get the sense that he has a rich interior life and wants yes. and, and needs of his own. Um, and uh, But he's in this very constricted role and place. You know, someone yeah. that in his own culture would be a warrior and a leader, but thrown out of that and, and because he's been castrated. Uh, but it's very clear that only cli- partly, partly castrated. castrated. Because, yeah, he still has a penis. So... Um, although his testicles has been removed and he cannot father children, he is, and that is a, a significant point made within the book, um, which I found very interesting. And I wondered why Judith Tarr made that choice. What do you think? Goodness, um, I've not thought of that. I mean, do you think it's a counterpoint to Kasim? Yeah, it, yes, yes, I can see that. And what you've got there is 
So this is me thinking out loud, by the way. Uh, so you've got uh, you know Hamsen, who is the um, uh, a, basically a playboy prince yes. uh, who uh, does something very bad, and he uh, he gets injured one night because he's been out drinking and he spent all his money. Um, gets taken by a doctor um, and to, to be healed by a wise man and he ends up raping that doctor's daughter and then is cursed to be a horse and to learn to serve and will get a human voice once mm. and he ends up being Zamania's horse and you know and he becomes very protective of her but Jafar's protective in a different way yes you know so there's a the, the two of them protect her and look after her Jafar I think is he he is much more thoughtful in what he does for her and it's about mm. her and his service for her and his affection for the woman under his charge and the, the friendship between them mm. is a lot richer and deeper um, and we we see Zamania through his eyes quite a bit, we see her as she grows see her as she starts to become a young woman and he starts to become attracted to mm. her and is very conflicted about what to do about that, particularly in his role um, so it's, it's a very important just like Weaverada, it's a very important lens onto her as a person and a character as we start to yes. see her. And there's a very female gaze yeah. at Jafar. And oh, the fact all that muscles. He's beautiful. And, yeah. yeah. And a very attractive man in his own culture, we are told, yes. if not in Cairo. Yes, but we because because when um, when Zamania starts getting her period, he's she is told by Jafar that she will start looking with a woman's eyes. And so she does start seeing how beautiful Jafar is. So it's it's totally a woman's gaze, perspective on life within the harem and and about him. And he knows that he could seduce her. But he chooses He chooses not to. not to. And he, he does that knowing She's a noblewoman's daughter, his master's daughter, uh, that um, she also has very limited exposure to other people. And yes, they're very close, but he doesn't want to take advantage of that closeness. Yeah, so I think it's the idea within, within the book that outsiders to the Muslim um, nobility are unworthy people, but we actually see that in quite a clever way overturned through um, Jafar and through Iskander, the Greek um, horse master, who has never become a Muslim. No, and even even Hassan, uh, the Playboy Prince, we're told that his mother was Circassian. Yes. So he's not purely um, uh, of either um, Turkish or the, that, that kind of aristocracy. He's, yes. he's, a, he's sort of slightly mixed blood. We hear about his you know, flaming red hair being very unusual. So he's visually very different from mm. people. It's, it's, it's very much a, a kind of a patrilineal, you know, you, no matter who your mother is, it's your father who's important and Absolutely. your father's blood. Yes. And his mother was a concubine until yeah. she gave birth to... A son and therefore became Got elevated. Elevated, yeah. It's I I think it's such it's such a layered book. It's so interesting. I think I've probably read this maybe four or five times mm. since 
encountering it about five years ago, so I've read it about once a year, and I, I really, really like it. So, like, we started talking about, like, the idea of um, a class system within the book, so shall we talk about that a little bit? Um, the kind of what is considered a natural gentility as opposed to a national gentility. So, like, if we think about Harry as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed white woman and how she's treated by the hill folk as opposed to Wibberada. So, do you want to tell us a little bit about Wibberada as a character? She's actually one of my favourites. Oh, I, I love her. I love her. She's... So she's Frankish, she was uh, captured as a prisoner of war and then taken as a concubine. So she's lived most of her adult life as a concubine, um, has been given, we're using Wibberado as her Frankish name, that's one that's used uh, about her in the book the most, but she's been given uh, her concubine name that she, she goes under, she's lived in this household, but she, she feels very trapped. Mm -hmm. uh, she resents her captivity in many ways she's actually the kind of person that Zamania's father wants Zamania to be yes. you know she's very strong she's got very uh, fierce opinions she's very active she wants to ride and fight she was trained to do that and, and she hates the the constriction of where she is she feels like she's caged and as a mm -hmm. as a mentor and a friend for Zamania she's the one who's pushing her and encouraging her to think about what she wants as a woman and that she's entitled to desire things and uh, to, to prize the freedoms that she has. Uh, so there's, actually in both books, there's a little bit of um, women lifting other women up, which yes. I quite like, in the way that Harry lifts up uh, Sene, the yeah. other uh, competitor from the tournament, who's the other girl, mm. uh, and they become friends. Here's Amania gives Weaverada a measure of that freedom that she has. She shares some of that benefit. Mm. She dresses her up as a man, uh, as one of her guards, and takes her out. And um, Weaverada sneaks away and joins the army um, when they go off on campaign because she wants to come out and fight and a blind eye is turned. So she, she gets a measure of that freedom. Mm. There's a moment in the book where uh, Weaverada escapes and in, when they're on campaign and there's a chance for her to kind of go back to her Frankish people. And she runs, but she comes back, which I thought was really interesting because she's not welcome. She's yeah. not welcome back with her own people because she's been away so long and she's very tainted. Yes, and because she's she like the the, the Magi's daughter at the yeah. beginning of the book. She also encounters sexual violence. She does, and it's unclear the extent of that sexual violence within the book, but she's covered in bruises, which Jafar identifies as men's hands. Um, but what interested me about that in particular is the difference between, and again, this is about the horse and his boy, when Shasta encounters the Narnians and the way that he's immediately recognized, not just as a Narnian, but as a nobility. Yeah, and that does not happen with Weberardo. She's she's a prize, and, yes. and she she's taken in. 
where Harry is treated with respect as the, the king's kidnapped victim and lives in his tent and, and, and treated. Weaverada is a chattel, she's owned, she's a concubine, she's a slave. Uh, yeah. She's there to provide sexual pleasure and maybe have kids, and that's it. And the way that there is this, this sort of assumption within C.S. Lewis's world that Christianity confers a natural gentility and we see that that is not the case. Definitely not the case. Because Wibberada is, uh, her Frankish people are probably um, around King Baldwin of mm. Jerusalem. And the, at that time of the Crusades, um, you know, which was in theory a religious war. And yet her religion is not taken into account at all because she's a woman when she turns up at the, the Frankish camp. So she's she's firstly thought of as a spy, and then she's thought of as yeah a prize, uh, you know, that something that the the soldiers can uh, use rather than anything else. And unlike in A Horse and His Boy, where the Calamen are cartoon villains, yeah. they are very much cartoon villains. You know, they are. Uh, evil foreigners with their evil ways and yes. they, they twirl their moustaches and cackle and, and invade. And talk in a ridiculously florid way. And, you know, and Radabash is set up as a kind of quite a comical figure at the yeah. end of the book. You know, he's having a massive tantrum and nobody takes him seriously. But here we've got this complex, layered Middle Eastern society mm. with its own politics and the politics between Syria and Turkey and Cairo and who has control of which cities and factions and um, respect and strata and faith. And you start to see some of that criticism of Frankish ways and, and Western Christianity. And, and you know, and, and some of it is the the kind of the, the, the kind of the classic stuff of, gosh, who are these people? They don't bathe all that often. And, yeah. you know, what do they do? But... But you, you, you don't get that sense of, uh, you know, our God good, your God bad that you get with Lewis. No, it's much more to do with customs, uh, cleanliness, and ideas about cleanliness, um, and about morality in a, in a small M, morality, yeah. and not just about an honour, and it not just being about... Um, you know, who, who's, as you say, whose God is better. It, it's about how do we organise our society in a way that is just fair, whatever. And, you know, I don't think Tara ever really comes to a conclusion about that. We're not presented with a conclusion about that. No, and Weberada's life is not perfect as a concubine and a slave, but she lives in relative comfort. She has silks to wear, she has plenty of food to eat. She doesn't have the freedom that she craves. Mm. But then uh, her life uh, as a Frankish woman would not have been perfect either. And we see yeah. see an element of that. So there are no, what, what Tara is doing is bringing out that complexity. Mm. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate that. Me too. So let's talk then about Hassan as oh. a character. Talk about problematic. <laughs> yeah, he's he's very high up on my list of terrible fictional boyfriends. He is a terrible fictional boyfriend. Oh my word. Yeah. So Hassan is, as we've already said, turned into a horse uh, after raping the daughter of uh, a haji, who is also a mage. And he is cursed to 
lives a horse until he serves a woman, and so he has a geese uh, upon him, um, he must serve a woman and be prepared to die for her, otherwise he's going to be a horse forever. So Hassan fights against this to begin with, and we see a lot of the story through his perspective when he is in the persona of a horse, and it's, I quite like the description of him at the beginning of the book, as you see he's a bit weak in you know in his withers and you know he's, he's got, he looks very proud and very beautiful but yeah maybe he's not going to be a great horse I love that that was that was really interesting but then he does grow because he's with Samania for a good couple of years isn't he mm. it's not like um and that was something I'd, I'd missed I think in the first time I read it that I thought it was, you know, a couple of months, but it is, and it's very much. She trains him. She trains him, and he, to the extent that, like Harry, uh, Zamania wins a tournament, or nearly wins a tournament. She doesn't quite. Yeah, she throws it at the end. She throws it at the end because yeah. it's diplomatic to throw it. Yes, in a ta- very tactical way. Yeah, and um, and and comes seen as as he's known as a horse who is the wind of Cairo is um, is a part you know he's he he is a big part of why she wins that tournament because of his relationship with her and his uh, ability to be obedient to her and follow her lead um, but yeah yeah I mean he's very arrogant. I mean, he's meant to learn his lesson mm. through this, uh, to uh, learn to serve and to learn some humility. And, mm. and at the point where we meet him, he's, he was actually just about to be sent off to his father, to his uncle in the desert, to, yes. to kind of learn some manners because he's a playboy, a wastrel, spends money, gets, um, drunk. gets drunk a lot, um, has a lot of women and, and is just not very respectful, not very focused on the things he should be. So he needs to, to kind of go and learn and knuckle down. And he, in the book, sort of learns to do that while being a horse, but he mm. kind of doesn't. Yeah. So the the, the, the the kind of the curse on him is quite specific, you know, about, you know, um, turning into a horse and, and learning some, some humility. And he gets one chance. He's told he has one chance to speak with a human voice. Yes. at some point and, and, and that's where he offers to sacrifice his life for uh, Zamania to, to save her from an injury um, in battle which she has gained through defending his father but this is the interesting thing so she only actually got the injury because Kamzin took her and put her in danger yes. to rescue Kamzin's father who is Zamania's father's mortal enemy yeah. so in some respects, it's Camden's fault that she ended up in harm's way in the first place. And he wasn't thinking about her. He was only thinking about protecting his father mm. and the fact that Zamania was riding him and, and it was dangerous for her. did not feature in his thinking whatsoever. No. And uh, he does, however, learn some um, self-reflection and some perspective. But whether that is really enough, I'm not sure. No. And the best thing, I think, in his favour at the end of the novel, uh, so it gets to the point where 
there is a, another young nobleman who's mm. fallen in love with Zamania and is uh, offering to marry her. And uh, Zamania's father is uh, keen to progress with the betrothal, mm. uh, particularly now that she's she's healed and she's back from the dead and he's worried about her safety. But it's a betrothal that would mean her giving up a lot of the freedom that yes. she's had. She would be in the harem. She would not have the life. But what Hassan offers her is a bit more of a marriage of equals. Mm. And yes, that's a massive scandal that uh, they're found together and, and hence the desire to marry Zamania off very quickly. But he offers her that equality. He will accept the fact that uh, in the um, in the eyes of Saladin, who features quite prominently in the novel as, as the ruler, that um, she is a man um, in, and is being treated as a man and he will be happy for, Hassan will be happy for Zamania to, to ride off to war and ride another horse that isn't him because he's human again now and, and is quite accepting of that um, which I thought was, was probably the best redemption you know there's, there's quite a bit of humility there yes. for, to go against and to go against cultural norms to let your wife follow the path that she's been raised in and he has always been very conscious of the way that other people have perceived him in the past so now he's got to accept that people are going to judge him uh, and think he's you know not a proper muslim man or not noble man but he's prepared to accept that however i still think that Zamania is a better human being than oh, yeah. he is. Oh yeah. I don't think he's on her level no, as he's, a person. He's very possessive of her as well. Yes. And you see that. He doesn't like the idea of her riding another horse. He doesn't like the idea of uh, other men looking at her. It's very much she is mine. Um, but then, you know, going back to the blue sword, I don't think Corliss deserves Harry either. No, I agree. Yeah, I, I'm still not really sure what's so great about Corliss at all. So, yeah, but you know, I think it's it's interesting though that that this book is told through a dual perspective, mm. and so we do see um, we do see Hassan's growth as as a person and as a horse, but um, and we don't see that we don't see enough about Corth to really get a good. No. Oh dear. Apart from he has orange he eyes. Broods. He broods a lot. He broods and has orange eyes when he's doing magic. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it, really. Yeah. Gets a bit grumpy. Broods. Very Byronic. Bad boyfriend. Bad boyfriend. Yeah. He's another bad boyfriend. So, was there anything else you wanted to, to say about these two books? Was there anything you think we've missed out? Ah, goodness. Um, I love the details in both of them, actually. Mm. And there are, there are just little small details um, linking them. So, uh, one of the things I, I do love in The Blue Sword as well is, the, is some of the cultural coding of, of customs and how they come mm. through. So, the way that Corleth wears Harry's sash. Yes. And that being um, a marriage sign, and everyone knows this, and that becoming a plot point in the book. Mm. And we get bits of that in uh, Winds of Cairo as well. So much kind of cultural coding um, around how people are treated in ceremony and the haji and that that kind of world mm. building and little little small bits. So. Um, Blue beads feature in both. Yes, they so do. Because Camson gets blue beads threaded into his mane for luck. 
yeah. and the uh, forest archer people in so Kentar's people yes. uh, thread uh, beads onto their bowstrings and sometimes those little beads get found and they're usually blue and they're kept for luck as well yeah. and that just that little detail struck me and I don't know whether that was intentional or whether it's just complete coincidence I think it might be to do with the fact if you think about you know the evil eye um, mm. amulets that you see a lot in Turkey yeah you see them in a lot of Turkish restaurants I think it's about that it might be a, a yeah it's those little bits of texture yes. and detail that just mm. just kind of and the uh, the, the spring festival in um, the Bleasal where everyone comes out uh, once the weather gets better and you have a party so I love that kind of texture mm. in books and there's so much of it in a wind in Cairo and yes. it feels very deeply rooted in a culture and I, I don't know how Judith Tarr has managed that as a writer from outside that culture and I don't know how accurate it is but I love that texture and you know things around food and customs and, and it's just I, wonderful. I know she did a PhD on um, medieval, the medieval world in um, in the Muslim, the Muslim medieval world. So I would presume that even if she doesn't know this particularly well, she knows where to go and get that information. So yeah, I did. I did believe a lot of it. It felt very real, but I would love to know what other people who know more about that period Me think too. about it. Um, so yeah, um, and I mean, as we said, she knows horses because she breeds horses. Uh, she breeds dancing horses. Yeah. Uh, and I can't remember what they're called. Lipizzana. Lipizzana, thank you. That Spanish riding school. Yes, of Vienna. Yes. Yes, yes. so she breeds those kinds of horses in, in Arizona, I believe. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely believe her about horses. She knows, she knows about that. I'm going to be taking a couple of weeks off recording to deal with admissions and other pre-teaching things at university. And I will be back in mid-September with a recording with um, Matt and Nina from Even the Trunchbull. So please do come and listen to that and enjoy that. Thank you for listening to episode 27 of Fantasy Book Swap. You can find us on Twitter at Fantasy Swap, on Facebook at Fantasy Book Swap, or email fantasybookswap at gmail.com. I have now rested my gmail back from someone called dolly who stole it and i have managed to get it back you can subscribe at most of your favorite podcast places or you can download from podbean please do rate and review if you can it really helps to satisfy my vanity thanks to steve vapor trails for production assistance and jack sadler johnson for the use of his beautiful track bliss until next time bye bye Thank you. That Thank was you. so great. That